Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's teaching text comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, would you thank Scout and welcome Peter White. Scott, thank you so much. My name is Peter. Is anybody in the room new in the past year? You can raise your hand. I promise I won't make you stand up and like introduce yourself and like sing a song or anything. Just you're new in the last year. Okay. Um, that's me and my wife. That's Jackie over there. I'm with her. Um, and we have two, uh, two kids, Cohen and Nora, that are downstairs right now. And they're pretty awesome. We love them. Um, and yes, John said, I, um, I have this ministry called the Sabbath Life um, that I believe deeply in this question of how do you be a healthy human being? Um, because in my, in my 43 years, I have found that to be uh, really hard. I'm still trying to figure it out. And someone who got involved in professional ministry about 13 years ago and went to seminary twice, there's something about being in ministry and being a pastor that makes that message, like doesn't solve that problem. Like, how do you be a healthy pastor? Like, we don't always talk about that or taught how to do that and frequently in my conversations and spiritual direction with some pastors, pastors I work with, like, this is front and center of, like, how do you be a healthy human being? So that's what the Abbey's about. That's what the Sabbath life is about. You should come sometime and spend a half a day or a whole day or a whole weekend. Uh, there was one of uh, our apprentice groups here came as a group and stayed in the whole house. Uh, that was, like, two weeks ago, and I was really grateful for that and to spend some time with them. Thanks, guys. So, can I pray? Oh, Lord, almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable, acceptable to you. May these words, the things of earth, grow strangely clear. May those words seep deep in our hearts this morning. May they crack our hearts wide open. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, I want to start this morning in the book of 1 Samuel. You didn't see that coming, did you? Actually, no. I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. Because any faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus starts in chapter 1 of Genesis. That God made the world. God made the world good and beautiful, everything 
in its right place. In the face of chaos, in the face of the deep, God says, let there be light. And this is the beginning of the story. Everything is in its right place, and there's this really big theology Bible word for this, shalom, everything where it belongs. Unfortunately, something happens. The world breaks. Now, we have two young kids. Some of you have young kids or have had young kids in the past. And, you know, recently we celebrated Christmas and then Christmas again with family members and then another celebration with some other family members. And, you know, after the third or fourth one, the kids are like, is there more? I think there's something deeply human in that. There's something deeply human in the fall in that response, that in everything God made and everything God gave, human beings were like, but I want that over there. And so the fall isn't just something that happened at the beginning of time. The fall is something that happens. It happens again. It happens again. It happens every day that one of the sons of Adam or the daughters of Eve reaches out to grasp something that's not ours to take. And great evil has seeped into the world and unraveled God's good shalom. Do you feel it? We need healing. But God has a plan. Thank you, Jesus. God has a plan. So there's Abraham and Sarah, and we've got Joseph and Moses, and there's wandering in the wilderness and a promised land. And so we get to the book of Joshua, and we, we think, oh, this is the big red bow at the end of the story, happily ever after, the end, right? But that's not the end of the story. There's a whole lot of Bible left there. And so we get to then the book of Judges. Who's read the book of Judges before? Right? It should be an HBO show. I remember in college having a Bible class where they talked about like, there being this cycle to the book of Judges, that the people are oppressed by their pagan neighbors, so they cry out to God, God raises up a hero, you know, like DC or Marvel, and uh, the Spirit of God comes on that hero, and heads get bashed in, like in Braveheart, and then there's relative peace in the land, and harmony, covenant with God, and then the hero dies, and the people are oppressed by their enemy neighbors again, and the cycle goes over again. And yeah, there's, there's that cycle, but if you pay close attention in the book of Judges, it's not just a cycle, it's a spiral that goes down, and each time the cycle starts over, it gets worse. And it gets worse, and it gets worse, until you get to chapters 21 and chapters 20 and 21. And has anybody ever heard a sermon preached on Judges 20 and 21, the story of the Levite and the concubine? And not a, oh wow, I want to know how that went. Because <clears throat> here we get a story that that would make that is meant to make everybody blush pagan and Israelite alike. It is meant to shame the Israelites if this is how deep and depraved the world has gotten. That the covenant image bearers of God have reached this place. And there is, yeah, this is beyond rock bottom at this point. And so when the curtain closes on the book of Judges, we are left in this dark, bleak space and thinking, well, as the nation of Israel, are they just going to fade into the oblivion of history never to be heard from again? Or the promises of God that God's going to fix everything, that God's going to heal, that God's going to conquer the evil in the world. It, is that thwarted now? And so we come to the book of 1 Samuel, and the curtain rises, and we meet this regular guy named Elkanah. And 
in the brilliance of Jewish storytelling, we kind of start to think, Elkanah is going to be the hero of the story. But he's not. He turns out to be really a bumbling idiot. And, and then we're introduced to Eli, uh, the priest, and his sons. And we start to think, oh, maybe these priests who are ordained by God, they're going to be the heroes of the story. And then we find out, no, they're actually blind, both literally and metaphorically, and corrupt. And then we meet a woman, Elkanah's wife, and her name is Hannah. And what we know about Hannah is that she can't bear children. And so we soon learn that Hannah leads a life of quiet and lonely desperation. This, church, this is where God turns the story. Here is the hero of the story. And so, which gives us, I think, our first lesson this morning is that if you want to see where the next great movement of God is going to happen or is already happening, you need to look for where there is a woman praying in great anguish and grief. Those are the words used to describe Hannah in chapter 1. So this is where God turns the story. First and second Samuel is the story of David, uh, which sets up all of our expectations of what Messiah means when we're talking about Messiah, which tells us what to expect in Jesus and how to read the Jesus story. But before we can talk about David, we have to meet Samuel. But before we meet Samuel, we have to meet his mother, Hannah. Hannah is the catalyst that kicks off the whole story. This is how God breaks through in the person of a faithful mother. She is the one breathing hope into what God is doing in the world, despite all odds. So there are actually three poems slash prayers slash psalms in first and second Samuel. There's one in the beginning, there's one in the middle, and there's one at the end. And there's a common thread running through all three of them that, that give us clues as to what this story of David and what God is doing in the nation of Israel is all about. So let me read you Hannah's prayer here. She has just dedicated her son Samuel to the Lord uh, at Shiloh and left him there. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Don't keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. But those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and rises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the world are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Which is an interesting word for Hannah to use there, because there's not a king yet. And exalt the horn or the power of his anointed. Again, that's an important word we'll come back to here in just a little bit. Did you hear what she's talking about? God is flipping the world upside down. 
all of the haves are going to become have-nots. All of the have-nots are going to become haves. This is God's work and what God is doing in the world. We see it again and again happening in each one of the stories that then unfold throughout First and Second Samuel. It gets repeated in those other those poem prayers uh, that are in First and Second Samuel. Church, where are the Hannahs among us that it will be our prophets and our teachers and our preachers? All right, let's turn to, uh, to Psalm 113, the psalm we just read just a minute ago. I want to look at that again and revisit, starting with verse 5, if you want to look at that. Who's like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust. Where have you heard that before? He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes and with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Does, does that, those words sound familiar? Have you heard them before? This, this is the this song of Hannah, right here in the Psalter, captured in the prayers of ancient Israel, the liturgy of the early church, teaching us how to talk to God, how to talk about God. This is what God does. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, we just read from Luke. What's all the Old Testament stuff like? Are we going to get there? Yes, we will. Hold on. But just a minute before I get there. A couple of years ago, I was working with the Wesley Foundation at Oklahoma State University, doing some work in spiritual formation for them. Um, and leading their team of interns, and Nina Reed was one of our interns with that group. And I remember the first week of school, and we are, um, the, the university allowed us to like set up a table um, where all the students are walking by. You know, these are things we did before COVID that probably never will happen again. And so all the organizations on campus can set up a little table or little tents and distribute, you know, candy or flyers or whatever, tell people about your organization and invite them. So I'm there with our student team, and I notice there's a, you know, a little setup next to us, and there's this guy, he's got flyers, and everybody comes, he's like, do you want to come to church? Do you want to come to church? Do you want to come to church? And I watch this, and I can watch people, you know, kind of down the sidewalk, you know, kind of see this and, like, walk to the other side of the sidewalk, or, like, not make eye contact, like, how do I get around this guy? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, nobody wants to come to church. Like, that's not what we're here for. Like, I don't want to go to church, honestly. And so I, I sat down with our, our team of, uh, of interns, and I, and I w showed them this video, this TED Talk of Simon Sinek, where he talks about start with why. Is anybody familiar with this? So yeah, he's a, like a business guru, consultant guy, but he draws these three concentric circles, and on the outside, the outside circle he describes, this is our, our what, our what we do, and then the middle circle is, is how we describe how we do what we do, and then the middle circle is our why. He says that most of us communicate from the outside in. We talk about what we do, whether we're a business or a church or a nonprofit or even just in our household. Uh, we can talk about what we do. Maybe we'll talk about how we get it done. And if we have any self-awareness, we can talk about our why, but most of us don't ever quite get to that space. But he said most like really transformational leaders and transformational organizations start from the outside in. This is why you see uh, an advertisement for Apple, but there's never an Apple product in the ad because they're selling something bigger. He says that we start with our why and then go out to what we do. So it's not about 
do you want to come to church? There's, there's something more. We, we have a why. And I think in this passage, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is staking his flag in the ground, saying, this is my why. This is what my ministry is going to be all about. This is what God is doing in the world. So, let's fast forward a thousand years after Hannah. The nation of Israel is in another really dark place. It's been 400 years since remnants returned from exile. There's no king. There's been no prophet saying, thus says the Lord. But there are Roman garrisons patrolling the streets. There are Roman tax collectors taking their money. It is bleak and dark. And so Luke, starting his gospel, he wants to tell a really epic story. So where does he go for inspiration? He goes to Hannah in First and Second Samuel. But instead of just one, he's going to talk about two women who are having babies who are not supposed to be having babies. And one of them, particularly Mary, she's going to pray a prayer. So I want to read that again. John shared this a couple weeks ago, read from this. I, as Christians, I... I like to think of Mary's song as our fight song. Hear these words. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You hear like some familiar refrains in there, some echoes. I mean, as great as Mary's song is, and it is great, it's a cover song. It's a cover song of Hannah and her song. But Luke is calling us back to remember this is how God changes the world. This is how God starts again. This is how God breathes hope into the world. Where are the Marys among us to be our prophets, our teachers, and our preachers, church? Now we're first going to meet Jesus as an adult in Luke chapter 3. He's baptized by John, then says he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. One thing really unique about Luke as he's telling the story of Jesus and telling the story of the early church in Acts is the way the presence and the character of the Holy Spirit is always front and center. The Holy Spirit is the main character in Luke and Acts. We see this again and again and again. So here in chapter 4, this passage, Jesus has come out of the desert, this temptation. He says he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. I wonder what that means. What does that look like? I mean, if all we had was the Old Testament, we have the book of Judges where the power of the Spirit meant violence. It meant God raising up heroes and fighting our enemies and, and rising and being victorious against all odds. Now, I, I'm a graduate of Oral Roberts University and spent my early 20s going to uh, non-denominational and charismatic churches where the power of the Spirit 
Thankfully, it didn't look like the Old Testament. Um, we didn't kill anybody, thank goodness. But the power of the Spirit did look like something very particular. Like, it looked like praying in tongues. It looked like um, miraculous healings. It, it looked like prophetic words, which were along the lines of, this is God's plan for your life, uh, or this big decision you're thinking about, this is the way you should go, stuff like that. The power of the Spirit here in Luke chapter 4 doesn't look like either one of those things. So let's take some time to look at this. I love that Luke kind of ratchets up the dramatic tension. He gives us this big summary statement of like, Jesus is full of the Spirit, people are talking about him, he's going around teaching, and then now we're going to see in, in verse 16, particular day that he does this. And then we get detail after detail after detail. He gives, he's given a scroll. It's handed to him. He unrolls it. He stands up. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Of all the things that Jesus could say to inaugurate his ministry, to, to be like a manifesto of this is who I am and what I'm about, this is what he chooses. Think about that. This is, this is a kind of a mashup of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, verse 6, both of which are tremendous passages. You should go and spend some time with them this week. But Jesus picks these mashes them together and says, this is me. <clears throat> now, the first thing that, that I notice here is that the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of the Lord is on me. For Jesus, it means and looks like freedom for prisoners, good news to the poor, sight for the blind, and setting the oppressed free. Very earthly things. Now, a second thing is that Jesus isn't doing anything new right here. He's not starting something fresh. He's actually anchoring himself and rooting himself deeply in the Hebrew tradition of the prophets. And the prophets are not really people who like predict the future or say this is God's plan for your life. I like to think of the prophets as, as the Deuteronomy police. So the book of Deuteronomy, it is, it is this, um, this covenant relationship between Yahweh and his people. That's, what, that's the function of Deuteronomy. It's like, it's the constitution for these people, defining their relationship together. And at the end of it is this whole chapter of, these are the really, really good things. This is what life is going to look like when you do everything that you're obliged to do according to this constitution. When you live your life in alignment with God and his shalom. But there's another whole chapter that is terrible, awful things. And this is, these are all the things that happen when you don't live your life uh, in alignment with Yahweh and his purposes. So the prophets then throughout the history of Israel are saying, whoa, 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 everybody, hey, we are not doing what God called us to do. We need to return and get back. We need to repent and get back to what God has told us to do. So that, that's the function of the Old Testament prophets. And in fact, Jesus' very first words in the Gospel of Mark, do you remember what they are? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So this is what Jesus wants. He, he's saying that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, all these guys, you remember them? I'm, they're on my team. Or I am on their team. They're with me. So, and then third, the third thing that I notice here is there is a wonderful picture of the Trinity 
here in this space. You notice this? We have Jesus the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit claiming words of the prophets of the Father as his very own. Now, I, I grew up in a setting where, I mean, now let me say it this way. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves in spaces or tell ourselves a story that, that pits the characters of the Trinity against them, one another. So we have God the Father, who's really mad at everything. He's, oh, he's so mad about sin in the world. And he is just ready to hit the big red button and blow it all up again. But the, there's Jesus the Son saying, no, God, Father, remember the cross. And he's like, oh, darn it. And then we have the Holy Spirit over here just doing all kinds of crazy things that nobody really understands. Or maybe some of us grew up in, in settings where we were, we were like, we don't talk about what happens over there. But that's not what we have in this passage. We have this beautiful unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together, all happening at once. And it's not just for, some, like for God to show off with fireworks, you know, or like this is the glory of God. It's, no, there's a very specific mission talked about here that this God, the kind of God that this God is, is for the sake of others. I think when we talk about ourselves being a church for the sake of others, this is what we're talking about. That we are here to be a part of the ways that God is healing the world around us. This is a God who is full of love for the world. So we have like, this is, this is I think, a, there's different stories around us about Jesus. I was just watching a, a show on Netflix that portrayed the church and a priest, and it, it, but it was completely devoid of this Jesus this love, it was framing the Christian story completely devoid of this. And we're surrounded, I think, by Christian stories that are alternative stories. So maybe, maybe one of them kind of looks like, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. That story starts in Genesis 3, not Genesis 1. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. And, but lucky for you, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So if you try really, 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 really hard never to sin again, you can go to heaven when you die. And that's the story. But that, if that is the story, then what do we need this Jesus for, who's announcing good news to the poor? Or there's, perhaps there's another story among us in our culture that says Jesus wears an American flag. He, he votes for a particular party. He um, is proclaiming that he is going to take our country back. Um, and you, you're either for us or you're against us. But if that's, if that's the story of Jesus, what, what do we need this Jesus for in Luke 4? The one who says, set the oppressed free. I like this story of Jesus. This story of Jesus gives me hope that God is doing something beautiful and good in the world. So what, what do we do? What, how are we supposed to take these words? I mean, because, gosh, these, these are really big and challenging, right? Kind of scary in a way. Like, I got to go do something now, right? There's, I think there's maybe three layers to kind of peel back a little bit at a time. One is to talk about sin. I mean, we have to talk about sin because sin is the very first place where we experience oppression, where we experience captivity, where we experience poverty. Uh, sin holds us back from all of these things. It's the evil that has corrupted us. And it is the story of, of Jesus, death, resurrection, and ascension and rule over all creation that heals us 
from that. It sets us free. Jesus is definitely talking about that in this passage. No doubt about it. There's a second layer, I think, to this where we take these words at face value. I remember um, probably about 13, 14 years ago, Jackie and I were living in Kentucky. We had just gotten married. We moved into this community where we were going to a church, um, and the pastor there was very big on the loving your neighbor. Like, that's just not anybody and everybody. Like, loving your neighbor, literally, your next-door neighbor, the person next to you, the person across the street from you. So we actually go and got to know a guy named Mike who lived across the street, had a liver transplant, couldn't get out of his house, really lonely guy. So we got to, to know these, this family that it was an extended family. One lived on either side of us, and they had, like, what, 10 kids between the two of them? It was like the anti-Brady bunch. Um, the five-year-old cussed like a sailor in the front yard. They, were, they had moved from Louisiana because of uh, Hurricane Katrina, and they were, their lives were a mess, but somehow they got wrapped into the life of our church because they lived in our neighborhood. Um, got to know a guy named Joe who lived in a trailer park, um, and he just lived the roughest life I had ever encountered at that point in my life. I was learning how to love my neighbors because it was like literally face value my neighbors. So wh what does it mean for us to people in prison? What does it, it mean the poor? So the federal government defines the poverty line as an annual income of $13,000 for an individual or $27,000 for a household of four. In the state of Oklahoma, one in seven people are below the poverty line. That's 600,000 Oklahomans, people made in the image of God. Jesus is here to proclaim good news to these people. Oklahoma currently has 25,000 individuals in prison. Only the state of Louisiana sends more of its citizens to prison than the state of Oklahoma. No other state incarcerates women at a higher rate than the state of Oklahoma does. And Jesus is here to proclaim good news to these people, to these women, to these image bearers. Building on this, this idea, I kind of like to go yet a, a deeper layers. How, how do we contextualize these words in Tulsa in 2022, 23 months into a pandemic? Who are the poor and the prisoners and the blind and the oppressed? And what does it mean to proclaim the year of God's favor? I was reading the book of Jeremiah, which are, if you're doing the, the daily office readings, I hope you are, we're, we're in Jeremiah. I was happened to be reading a couple of months ago just in my own devotional life and had just randomly picked up a book uh, that was about uh, the state of Oklahoma and kind of the history of Oklahoma and the Tulsa area. And I, honestly, I did not expect Jeremiah to speak to this history of my state in such a way. The book was written by a guy who doesn't identify as religious, but grew up here and then has moved away. Uh, but he's kind of like, kind of trying to, to nail down this paradox that Oklahoma is of how is it that there's seemingly a church on every single block, and yet we are near last in every single social indicator that we measure. How does that work? And then I'm reading Jeremiah, who has some really hot-button things to say about people who wave the flag of religion but exploit the poor and don't take care of uh, the widows and the orphans among them. We live in a city and a state where, where these things happen, but, but that they happen, like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not 
God's good shalom. This is not the way God made the world to be. We are people. We are a community, locally and regionally, in need of healing. And this is where our healing comes from. The power of the Spirit and the story of Jesus. It's not through individual philanthropists. We're not going to fix these things. Another nonprofit is not going to fix these things. God's best idea to fix the world is the local church. And it's passages just like this that remind us and point us to why church is still a really good idea in 2022. So, I've been trying to think through, I, I, I don't know about you, but I need hope. When I look at all these things, I just get overwhelmed. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with all this? And then I see the headlines, and I see yet another Christian or another Christian leader behaving or doing something really not right in public or something really heinous in public gets exposed. And I'm like, why do I still do this? Is this really true? Do these words of Jesus really matter? Does it make any difference? So I have to hold on to some saints and remember some saints that I see around me, both in past, maybe that I've encountered in a book or a writing, people that I sit down and have lunch with that I know. One of these people is Dorothy Day. Dorothy was, she, she lived early in the 20th century, uh, during the 20s and the 30s, particularly she dabbled a lot in communism and anarchism before she found Jesus uh, through the Catholic Church. She actually re rejected a whole lot of leftist politics at the time because of Jesus, but she was so drawn to the poor and identifying her life with the poor around her that she and her friend Peter Marin started a newspaper called The Catholic Worker, which highlighted these abuses and exploitations of, of workers in New York City at the time. Um, and it spread and it spread, and then they started what they called a house of hospitality, which was just a communal living space for people in need of food and shelter and, and, and clothing, and anybody could come and live there. And over the span of about 10 or 20 years, these just kind of exploded around uh, the U.S. and Canada and Great Britain. It got her into lots of trouble. She was arrested numerous times. She was always butting heads with church leadership. And yet, she was identifying with Jesus and the people that she thought Jesus loved the most. Here's something that she wrote from her autobiography. If we're rushed for time, sow time, and we'll reap time. Go to church, spend a quiet hour in prayer. You'll have more time than ever, and your work will get done. Sow time with the poor. Sit and listen to them. Give them your time lavishly. You'll reap time a hundredfold. So she's one saint I try to hang on to. Another is Martin Luther King Jr., who we honored and celebrated this past week. It still blows my mind. He's 26, a Baptist preacher, when he is wraps into leading the Montgomery bus boycott. 26. In 1963, he's in Birmingham as part of protests and sit-ins in Birmingham where he's arrested, and it's from jail that he writes letter from Birmingham jail. Now, if all you know from Martin Luther King is the I Have a Dream speech, go home and read letter from Birmingham jail. Um, he wrote it to a group of white pastors that were telling him he wasn't doing the right thing. He was going too fast. Um, he wasn't effective. And so this is a letter to critics. And not just any critics, they were white Christian critics. 
I try every time this time of year to go back and read that again, just to peel back another layer of, Lord, how do I need to repent this year? How do I need to see better the oppression of the people around me and the situations of the people around me? But five years later, in 1968, he finds himself in Memphis. At this point in his career, he's really focused his attention to poverty in the United States and, and opposing the Vietnam War. But he's in Memphis, Tennessee, because he's been invited by the sanitation workers who've gone on strike. It's the trash guys. Martin Luther is King is standing with the trash guys advocating for them. And in a speech that he gives, which actually happens to be his very last sermon, he would be murdered the next day. He actually has this passage of Luke 4 on his mind. He says this, we, we need all of you, and you know what's beautiful to me is to see all these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that's supposed to articulate the longings, aspirations of people more than the preacher. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos and say, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. This also makes me think of Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero was elevated to the Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977. He was picked for this job because everybody knew he wouldn't do a thing, that he wouldn't rock the boat. If you know your Latin American politics, anybody? Like, I, I really don't. I know just enough to tell the story, but I know it's a mess. It's extremely corrupt and violent all around Romero. People would, it was not uncommon for people to be arrested in the middle of the night and just disappear, never to be heard from again. The pe just regular, normal people were in deep grief and suffering as a result of this. And the church at large just kind of went along with it, didn't say anything. And then one of Romero's buddies, a fellow priest, was murdered. And that, like, flipped a switch for Romero. And he couldn't stop talking about the poor and the oppressed in his country and that the government had to stop what it was doing. There's a, there's a film of, of his life that is a film that didn't win any Oscars. Like, it's not, like, the most fantastic movie art-wise, but there's some fantastic scenes of just watching his life dramatized. A, a scene where a, a church has been taken over by a, a military group of guerrillas, and but the, the host, like the bread and the wine is still in there, and like Romero's not okay with that. So like he goes to the front of the church doors, and there's guys with machine guns there that are ready to shoot him, and you just see the steely resolve in him. And he's scared out of his mind, but he walks through the doors anyway, and he goes and gets the bread and the wine, and he takes it out and serves it to the people. Three years after, 1980, he would be murdered while he's serving communion in church, if you can believe such a thing. And I could go on and on. Oh, wait, I had some. I, I love his words. I wanted to share these words for me. This is the mission entrusted to the church, a hard mission to uproot sins from history, to uproot sins from the political order, to uproot sins from the economy, to uproot sins wherever they are. What a hard task. It has to meet conflicts amid so much selfishness, so much pride, so much vanity. So much who have enthroned the reign of sin among us, the church must suffer for speaking the truth, for pointing out sin, for uprooting sin. And no one wants to have a sore spot get touched. And therefore, a society with so many sores and twitches when someone has the courage to touch it and say, you have to treat that. You have to get rid of that. Believe in Christ and be converted. This is the kind of person Romero was. And I could go on and on. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. Talk about, like, taking literally 
setting prisoners free. My friend Philip, who started some schools in North Tulsa for, for families who feel left out of the public education system. I was thinking, <laughs> as I was preaching this, I thought about later, wait, there's people sitting right in front of me, like my friend Trina, who was here in the last service, who works with addicts and their families, or the, the Kings, who work with a school in Guatemala. So many of you are, are active in things, these things already, and this is why it's so good for us to be together, to remind ourselves this is the work that God does in the world. My friend Jeff, as the director of Restore Hope Ministries, gave away $21 million. Well, help distribute it. He didn't just give it away, but he helped distribute these funds to help people not get evicted last year. This is what power in the Holy Spirit looks like. When we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we look like Jesus, who is such a delightful presence to the poor and the forgotten and the cast-offs. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, like, what do I do? <laughs> that is so overwhelming, so depressing. Remember, this is the power of the Spirit. The work God, God does this. And notice that Jesus didn't just wake up one day and decide to do this. He does this after 40 days of silence and solitude. He is with God for 40 days. That's my sales pitch to come. Come to the Abbey. Spend some time alone with God. But my invitation to you is simply is just be with Jesus. Just be with Jesus. Because God is already at work in Tulsa, Oklahoma. God is already at work in your office. God is already at work in your neighborhood. God is already at work in your school. If you just simply be with Jesus, he will take you where he's already at work. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I only see, I only do what I see my Father doing. You aren't meant to do everything. All, all these overwhelming needs in our city and state, like, that's not for you. But there is something for you. There is something for you. When we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we look like Jesus, who's a delightful presence with the poor. This is, when we talk about the renewal of all things, this is some of the things we're talking about when we say all things. Right, Don? Can we pray? Oh, good God, we are so grateful. Thank you that you are a God who made the world and you love the world and you are healing the world and you are inviting us to be with you. That our, our pitch to people is it please come to church, but our, our, what we get to do is to go be among people and say, our God is healing the world, do you want to come with us? Oh, Holy Spirit, lead us. Fill us. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.